he hated pretty much everybody, distrusted pretty much everybody, um, was obviously a very lonely and miserable man and, and, you know, lashed out at everything he didn't see as familiar and, and, and you know, let's face it, straight white wasp, yep. you know, it's sort of, um, which is desperately sad because he did have this prodigious imagination. He did have this ability to tell really weird, unsettling stories. There are a few things that make me happier than when I meet a creator whose work I enjoy and they turn out to be awesome. And that happened here. I sit down with any award-winning creator, Lynn Hardy. She may be best known for her work on Cthulhu, whether it be Call of Cthulhu, Octung Cthulhu, or her most recent work for Chaosium, The Children of Fear. We have an interesting discussion about being a woman in the gaming industry. And make sure you stick around for our discussion about how problematic Lovecraft can be and how she reconciles that. Lynn was a great guest, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. Okay, let's sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Lynn. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rulebooks, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Howdy, friends. Craig here. Today, we talk to author designer, and associate editor for Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu line, Lynn Hardy. Lynn has been a part of many of the games we love. She was nominated for any for her own game and worked with many publishers like Modifius, Pelgrane Press, and Green Ronin. She is now in a leadership role with Chaosium, helping to shape the future of our beloved Call of Cthulhu. Lynn, welcome to the third floor. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've really been looking forward to this. Before we get into all of the goodies, though, we've got to do your origin story. So at some point, you had no idea. You could grab a sheet of paper, write a few numbers down on it, roll dice and pretend to be other people. And then one day it was shown to you. I'd love to go back there if we could. Well, I mean, let's face it. I think most of us have actually been role playing a heck of a lot longer than we'll be prepared to admit to. Um, This was a conversation that came up the other day. as a result of Children of Fear, which we'll, we'll get, I'm sure we'll get to later. Um, but I remember <laughs> when the Monkey TV series was on here in Britain, and I remember us all taking on roles from that and running around the playground, live role-playing, let's face it, although we would have called it make-believe back then. You know, I, I also remember getting to play Han Solo while my best friend was Princess Leia. So, you know, it's, you know we've, 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 we've always done it. Humans tell stories. We've always, always done this. So, I mean, let's face it, most of us have been role-playing longer than we've officially been role playing. Very true. But in terms of tabletop, um, I would have to say my first awareness of it was ET, which I am old enough to have actually gone to the pictures to see when it was released. I did the same. <laughs> but I had flu, and my best friend then insisted I had to go with it, even though I could barely stand up. Uh, I think what were we about ten years old, if that. Um, and 
I have very, very hazy memories of E.T. I really don't remember much of it, apart from the bit where they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, which for years I wasn't convinced I hadn't actually dreamed um, because I was somewhat feverish and delirious. And the kid <laughs> in the row behind me kicking me in the back going, wake up, wake up, you're supposed to be watching this. And I had no <laughs> idea who they were um, and didn't really work. So I don't really remember. Much. That, that, those are my two abiding memories of E.T., really. Sick Dungeons and right, Dragons and right. this annoying kid. So, you know, I was aware of it, but I grew up in the East Midlands in a in a mining village, at the time the largest village in England. Um, and, you know, it wasn't something that you really dealt with. There was, a, I think it was a Taggart, where there, were a whole, there was a lunatic who was a live role player running around the steam ducts and, and tunnels and things, killing people. So, you know, we didn't quite have the satanic panic to the level that you did in the states but there was always this oh it's a bit scary and weird and then i went to university um and i i lived in a place called ethel williams hall uh which was uh, one of the halls (laughs) of residence for newcastle university um and it was out uh, away from the city center away from the main campus um and the, the building was amazing it had several really old bits um the bit i lived in first was the vicarage um, there was another bit that goodness knows how old it was, but it was incredibly old called North House. A huge chunk of it was sort of like a 1920s, 1930s nursing home that had been converted into a student hall of residence. And then all of it had wow. been kind of joined together at some point. So it was an amazing building, but it was three miles out of the city centre and the metros didn't run particularly late. So it tended to have quite a vibrant little social life of its own. So for Freshers Week... They had lots of parties in the bar. It had its own little bar. Um, and I went down and I put on my Seattle Seahawks American football top, which at the time was actually really hard to get hold of in this country because you could get the <laughs> Dolphins, you could you could get Washington, you could get the Cowboys and the Raiders and everything. But, you know, to get a Seahawks one, you really had to be hunting for it kind of thing. That's funny. Um, and I'm at the first night party at Freshers, at Freshers Week. Um, and these guys sidle over to me looking slightly shifty and a little bit embarrassed and it turns out they were big American football fans they were actually on the university's American football team um, and we got chatting about that and it turned out they were gamers and they invited me to join their group and the rest as they say is history. <laughs> so looking back as an adult now Lynn um, obviously you know it had an impact right mm-hmm. that was you know your first exposure but you played several games after that and continued on any sense of maybe what it was that hooked you from the beginning now looking back on it? Well it was a chance to spend time with friends yeah and it was that whole creative storytelling element um, I you know I when I was very uh, young I was well into the famous five, you know, Enid Blight and stuff, um, problematical as it is, but, you know, that was what we had when I was a child. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was very much into horses and ballet stories as well. And then one of my school teachers got us to read The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. Wow. And that was kind of it. That was the slippery slope. I just started devouring fantasy science fiction. I just really got into all the dragon stuff with Anne McCaffrey and and that was you know it was the 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 opportunity to then tell stories in worlds like that with friends was the thing that really hooked me oh that's great now i would assume at some point during your gaming career you first came across call of cthulhu so i'd be curious to know when that happened well it wasn't my first um chaosium game 
the very first role-playing game I played actually was RuneQuest. Um, oh, and that's nice. because our, our, our main GM was a guy called John Wilson. Um, and he'd run role-playing games since he was, you know, early teenager at school. And RuneQuest was his game. I think it was second edition. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody would stolen all his books and he used to pretty much run it from memory. Um, so I inherited a character called Shirley the Dwarf, um, who apparently had been male, but then became female. But nobody was entirely certain because, of the, you know, the beards, it, it's, it's confusing. Um, and that was great. I, I loved that. And then John picked up Call of Cthulhu from Games Workshop um, before they just, you know, exclusively started doing their own stuff. And Call of Cthulhu was what we used to run as light relief from our long running campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> what was the other campaign like? Well, I, mean, yeah, I say light relief. It was change of pace, I think, would probably be more gotcha, accurate. Okay. <laughs> most of us in that group were, were GMs, you know. I mean, that was my first experience. Um, they're, they're, after about a, a couple of months, maybe not even that, they came to me and said, we think it's time you started running something. We want to play Redbox D&D. We haven't played it since we started. That's going to be your game. Um, nice. So that's how I, I got into that. You know, I was very much encouraged. And there was really only one person who didn't GM. And that's just because they really weren't interested. They just liked mm-hmm. telling the story side of things. They didn't want to have to be running a game. So, I mean, we did huge numbers of different games and settings. And because it was a hall of residence and people moved through and people graduated, we got new people coming in, people leaving. So, you know, for the the three years I lived there, we had numerous people joining, and we tried all sorts of different stuff. So it was it was really great. But no, Cold Cthulhu was our light relief change of pace game. <laughs> so one thing that's uh, interesting to me, Lynn, is um, you know I've been interviewing uh, the kind of the focus of this podcast, or a new focus for this podcast, has been interviewing creators, especially in the RPG space, like yourself, and. Um, I've ha- I can count on one hand uh, the number of women I've had a chance to interview. Um, and, you know, you, uh, you and I being of similar age, you know, going back then to, you know, you playing tabletop gaming, I, I, I mean, it wasn't until well into college that I had my chance of role playing with a, with a woman at the table. It was male dominated. Were you the only woman in the group or was, was your group because of kind of the confines of the resident hall, a little bit more diverse? Start with, I was the next year. Um, Philippa joined us. She was a new intake. Uh, So there was two of us, which was great. Um, But no, I mean, when I started, I mean, we were there and it was interesting because I also did live role playing Slightly later oh, wow. after, you know, I, I started doing live role playing after one of the people who joined our group. He was a sub warden, so he was doing his PhD, but he'd been at Durham University who had Treasure Trap, which is like mm-hmm. the oldest live role playing thing in the country. Um, and he sort of took us over there um, and I started doing that. And the interesting thing has always been there's always been way more women doing LARP, noticeably so, or at least at the time. And then, of course, you had slightly fewer women doing tabletop gaming. And we were eventually joined by a third girl. Um, I think her name was Gillian, um, sort of like just before I graduated. So, you know, we were kind of getting towards parity in the group by that point. Um, but I'd always been a bit of a tomboy. So, you know, I was kind of used <laughs> to being the only girl in amongst the guys. Sure. <laughs> that was kind of my permanent state of being. <laughs> That's funny. Um, it um, it's very fascinating to me because um, I'm also a war gamer. Uh, play miniature games, right? Um, 
And, uh, you know, I took a huge break from role playing. Uh, and then when the pandemic hit, my interest was rekindled for obvious reasons because uh, I could play that online as opposed to playing, you know, war games online. And uh, I, first thing I noticed, um, and I, by no means am I going to try to pretend that uh, RPGs are where they need to be. Um, as far as diversity and inclusion, but boy, they're way ahead of mm -hmm. war gaming and a lot of other tabletop gaming. And I wonder if whether you have any thoughts on that, whether why is it do we seem to see um, role playing games to be farther along on this metric uh, versus some other tabletop games? Do you have any sense of why that might be or guesses? I think I mean, I don't know if I'm right here, but I think it's the increased ease with which you can create them. Oh, let's face it, we we are in an amazing place at the moment where you can write your own games, you can, you know, produce them to really professional standards with minimum really of software and training, and you can get them out there, you can share them, you can sell them on digital platforms. I mean, none of that was available to us in the early 90s. Um, so, you know, I think there's that. So women are producing the sorts of games they want to play. They can get them out to people so that they're shared. And I think that has helped hugely in broadening the appeal. Yeah. Having game shops that also don't smell like a dirty pile of laundry <laughs> has also been really nice and, you know, has helped attract in people. Um, because I remember when I first started doing this, um, we had time slip comics which sold role-playing games. We had a very grungy Forbidden Planet that sold role-playing games, and they didn't smell good. <laughs> they were dark yeah. and they no. were dingy. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew that uh, deodorant would be one of the innovations that would uh, make the gaming more inclusive? <laughs> but it, it was just the sort of like you know, it was like really going into a dungeon just to go buy your, yeah. your gaming products, which was, you know, it was it was interesting and it it was a bit intimidating because they would quite often be you know, underneath comic shops and you'd be, you know, it'd be very judgmental that you were in there in the first place in some place, in some cases. Um, but yeah, so I think that the whole ability to self-publish and self-market and get your games out there has really helped tremendously because there's much more variety of things that you can play and explore. Yeah, and then the, the popularity, right? Mm. So the pie has gotten bigger. So more people are playing, which uh, which I think makes things um, a lot easier. Uh, so guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. So we're going to take a quick break. And before we jump into Lovecraft, I want to talk to Lynn about stuff that she's done outside of Lovecraftian universe. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. 
Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So I mentioned in the introduction uh, that Lynn had been any nominated, which is a pretty big freaking deal, and was for your absolutely, uh, it was for your own game, Cogs, Cates, and Swordsticks, which once I booked Lynn, it was really the first time I'd come across the game and paid any attention to it. So for those listening, Lynn, can we get an idea of what the game is? Yes, it's um, a game of steampunk pulp adventure in the Empire of Steam. And where did that come from? Oh, it was one of those things. Um, we I think it was when we'd been up in Edinburgh to a games convention and we were on the train on the way back and they'd kind of had sort of like a, a game jam thing as part of the convention. Not that they called them those then, but, you know, that's effectively what it was. Um, and we were just, me and my husband were sort of spitballing game ideas and we, we were just talking about games that you could do that were really simple. And also around the same time, um, we'd we'd done a lot of live role playing. Um that's how I met my husband was through Treasure Trap at Durham University. Very so, nice. So, you know, that was that was always in there. Um, and we'd been doing a lot of live role playing. Uh, we'd been involved in a game that was run by friends of ours uh, called um, Company of Crimson, which was a homebrew LARP where we'd get dressed up in Victorian kit. We'd go and take over a youth hostel for the weekend and we'd have bizarre adventures. And it was great fun. Um, but of course, at that, that point, that was starting to lead into steampunk. And um, we we went to the first really big steampunk um, convention in Britain, uh, which was called the Asylum. And it was in Lincoln uh, in September. Uh, and it was called the Asylum because it was actually held in what were the old asylum buildings in Lincoln at the back of Lincoln Castle, um, which had hilarious, hilariously been converted by the council into a wedding and, and sort of general <laughs> venue. Um <laughs> I mean, it was it was a great place to actually have like a fledgling sort of like convention where all the steampunks were coming together. Um, and what we saw there when we were sort of helping out on our friend's stand and various other bits and bobs was that there were a lot of people who were interested in role playing, but didn't really know where to start. Yeah. And at the time you had um, Victoriana which is a great game, you know, because I edited the third edition, so I'm not going to say anything <laughs> bad about it. <laughs> it's great. Uh, and there was Airship Pirates. But, you know, both of them are big, quite intimidating books if this is something that you've never done before and you don't know anybody who has. So sort of building on the, the conversations we'd had on the train back from Edinburgh and, and various other things that we were doing, you know, my husband and I got talking and it was a case of, you know, well, I'd actually, I, I kind of quite feel like designing something it would be an introductory game for cosplayers, effectively. You know, they really like their steampunk stuff, but they don't know anything about gaming. So that's what we did. And, you know, we tested it um, at 
the asylum and the original version of it was put out on a cd that i sold at various conventions because that you know print on demand was not that common and was actually quite pricey um and i didn't want to end up stuck with a whole load of books whereas cds you could just like burn off a few and and you know it, it, it didn't take up quite as much space so you know it was very well it went down very well people really enjoyed it but it was very much like this little wee independent thing and i had no clue how to market stuff you know that's that's not where my strengths lie sure um but i i started using it as a writing sample so um i i sent it to um walt at cubicle seven and that actually got me the victoriana editing gig um i sent it to chris birch at modifius and that's what got me on into Acton Cthulhu. So, you know, it was a very valuable game for that. Uh, and at the time, um, Acton Cthulhu was being produced in association with Chronicle City and Angus Abrison, and it was printed up. It was actually turned into a real book. Um, and I was very lucky that Dr. Jeff and Kit Cox let me raid their art um, back catalogue and, and use pieces of those because they were friends we had from the steampunk world. Um, and... You know, there was this this book uh, and then it was entered for the Ennies and it was entered, you know, sort of like family game, which I hadn't intentionally designed it as. But I suppose because I designed it as an introductory game, it right. by default really was a family game. So, I mean, that was that was an amazing honor. Um, and it was it was really great. And of course, it was lovely to go to Gen Con. And that was interesting because I hadn't been to Gen Con in years. I'd gone to one in 1994 and Wizards of the Coast had paid for me to go because I used to run Talislanta for them at conventions um and then I went back again for that one which was probably 2013 um and just the change in the demographic was lovely because there were more women there were more children it was much more of a family thing than when I'd been at Milwaukee in 94 Mm -hmm. so you know it so that all kind of ties in together um but no, it was amazing. And it was interesting. You know, I'd, I'd be on the stand with uh, what we were told by um, one person who came to the stand, the most aggressively British poster they'd ever seen, which is the teapot cover of the game. Um, <laughs> and we'd be in steampunk costume. And it was interesting, the fact that women were coming to the stand to talk to me about it. Nice. And wanting to, and we were running little, little short 10, 15 minute demos of it so people could get, and it was girlfriends and partners who were coming, not hardcore gamers. So, I mean, that was lovely. And then over the next few years, you'd get people who'd bought it and they would come back and tell me how their children were using it, how teachers were using it to teach children about creative storytelling and, and history. Um, and there was one amazing story, um, where um, uh, there was a lovely couple used to come and, and see me every year I was there. And um, the, the husband's mum had had a stroke um, and she'd lost most of her ability to speak. But their son was using the game with his grandmother to help her regain her language skills. My Lord. Kind of left me a sobbing wreck. About I bet. Know, I mean, I know, get emotional was, you know, thinking about it. Yeah, you know, these are the, um, and this is the power of gaming that you don't yeah. always realize. And, and you have no idea once you've written something how people are going to use it. And it's always fascinating to find out what people get up to. So, you know, it's, it's, it was never designed to be a blockbuster seller. Um, it was designed to be fun. The whole gag was that you all you needed was a napkin and a sugar cube and you wrote your character on the napkin and you put dots on your sugar cube and and roll that as your d6 um 
and yet it's those who know about it it seems to be very beloved and of course i i'm eternally grateful to it because it it really got me back into the gaming industry after i'd had a break of a few years yeah yeah so looking back on it then lynn what, what do you think made it so i mean it sounds approachable might be the right word for describing it what is it in the game that made it so approachable i think just because it was so simple I mean, yeah. it, it uses a D6 because both my husband and I are gigantic fans, obviously, West End games, Star Wars and Ghostbusters. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like you have your D6. But the D6 was chosen because it's an easy die to get hold of. You know, most people will have one. They turn up in crackers. You've got them in any other board game. Bookshops will have them. You don't have to go somewhere specialist to get hold of them. You know, so that was one reason. And it is very based on storytelling it's not mechanically very heavy you know i can get all of the rules on one side of a4 paper and it literally has one table wow. um and you know so that was that was kind of the key to it and it, it is very storytelling based there's a little bit of rolling it's heavily weighted in the players favors because your heroes you know you're supposed to be <laughs> succeeding yeah. um, but when things go wrong they really go wrong so you get that real sort of pulp catastrophic catastrophic disaster, amazing glory kind of thing. Um, and it just romps along at a fair old pace. And you need very, very little in the way of stuff to actually run it. And right. I mean, I know people who used to take it uh, on uh, road trips and it would be the game they'd play over lunch while they were stopped at the, the diner, you know, to going to wherever they were going. That's fantastic. So it sounds to me like it also became a calling card for you and allows you to kind of get, get, uh, gigs in the business um so what was next then so uh, when you look at yourself um from a design perspective what was your next big gig um i mean victoriana third edition which helped sort of hone my editing skills to a large extent but really the the next big one was act cthulhu yeah yeah and and it um i mean so you're not you not officially trained for this it's something that you've acquired over time when you again look back on it lynn what do you think has allowed you to to find homes there to find jobs as editors and and designers and creators is there something you know because it's a lot if you're like me you look in the past and you go oh okay yeah now that makes sense i can piece it together in retrospect have you done that and and kind of figured out like where these skills came from or how they got honed I'm afraid I was one of those precocious, horribly annoying children that was good at pretty much everything apart from sports. I was okay at field hockey. I was I was a demon left back and goalkeeper at field hockey, but no other sport really kind of. I was, I was also, despite being incredibly short, I was actually pretty reasonably good at basketball as well for a while, until I fell over and gave myself concussion and was slightly. <laughs> That explains Never a lot. Never quite so good after that. Um, yeah, well, we used to have to play in bad weather. We played indoors in what was called the barn, and they, it was like a concrete floor. And they put this like the thinnest layer of astroturf on it. And my my sneaker got caught on the astroturf, and I went over backwards and knocked myself oh, out, and just lay on the ground while everybody kept playing around me. You know, it's like because that was British schooling. <laughs> it's like, is she dead? No, keep going. Um, so you know, no, I, I'm afraid I was a horribly precocious child. Um, so I, I always wrote essays. I earned stories uh, for English and things. And I, I used to win English prizes at school. So it was kind of always there. Gotcha. Um, but I decided I wanted to be a research scientist, you know, so that's what I went off and did. My, my degree is in biochemistry. My PhD is in molecular human genetics. Um, but the gaming was always kind of there as, a, as an under thing. And it's all to do with 
transferable skills. You know, it's right. project management, uh, you know, attention to detail, reading through reams of stuff to get the important information out of it, <laughs> um, and then applying it. So, I mean, that's that's where that's kind of like the meeting of the two worlds. It's what I used to do when I was at school, and then the training that I had in in what we we call transferable skills, because right. you know you can you can go anywhere and you can do anything with a certain set of skills. And I think it's also the fact that I love learning. Um, I used to teach in FE and HE, um, so further education and higher education. Um, and the the big slogan at the time was lifelong learning. And the thing is that you you are always learning, or you should at least always be learning. And it it may not necessarily be big things or specific subjects, but you know there's always more out there that you can learn. And pretty much most of the things that we learn can be transferred and applied to other things. You know, there's usually a way. Nothing you learn is ever going to really go to waste. There'll be some point in time you'll be able to use it. Yeah. So. It- I mean, you've worked on several games, and I'd be curious, Lynn, if there's certain games, um, and obviously we're going to delve into Call of Cthulhu a lot, we're going to delve into Octung a lot, but I'd be curious if there's other games that you look at as games that were important to you as a creative person. So games where maybe you learned a lot or you were honing skills a lot. What are, what are some uh, big landmarks for you? I'd say there were two others. One of them would be the Dying Earth role-playing game by Palgrain Press. Nice. And one of them would be Blue Rose. Um, so I would love to start with Dying Earth. So when you look at Dying Earth, as far as being part of your of your progress, what, what did Dying Earth give to you or what did you give to Dying Earth? Well, we were playtesters for it. Um, I, I mean, I've known Robin Laws for years now. Um, it was really funny, actually, listening to your interview with John Harper, because, of course, he starts talking about Talis Lantern. It's like, hang on, I must have been on the same message boards as you. Um, <laughs> this is really weird. Because that's how I met Robin. That's how I met Rob Hines. So I used to, you know, when I was distracted from my PhD, I would be (laughs) arguing with Robin about what he was going to do to to, to Talislanta. Because, you know, that was the the thing that I I wrote for. That was how I got into gaming was Talislanta because I sent a couple of scenarios off to Wizards of the Coast after they'd purchased it. Um, And then... You know, they rang me. I went down to EuroGenCon and met them, and and the rest, as they say, is indeed history. Yeah. And they they paid for me to go to um, GenCon in Milwaukee in '94 to to run Talislanta games for them and work on the booth, which was an amazing experience. Um, so you know, I I knew Robin. I'd I ended up doing a research job in Toronto partly due to to Robin because I was you know the the great story of British research is go work in a North American research lab because they're all <laughs> awesome and they've got all this cool stuff, which is partly true. But I ended up in Toronto because I knew Robin lived there and he said, yeah, you know, come on, it's a great city to live in. And it was a great city to live in. It was a horrific job. It was dreadful. But I really enjoyed the year I lived there because I was part of Robin's group. We play tested all sorts of stuff. Wow. And it was a huge amount of fun. So, of course, I came back. We we stayed friends. And when we learned that he was developing Dying Earth, we we signed up to be playtesters. So I was running it. Um, and I played that with my husband, his best friend since childhood, and his partner. So, you know, we had a lovely little group, and it, it worked really, really well. And that's what kind of got me back into actual writing. Gotcha. Because I was writing stuff for the excellent Prismatic Spray. I was writing stuff for the supplements. 
um, I was taking play, uh, part in. They had a Dying Earth play-by-mail for years, which was great, that we used to just sort of like write utter nonsense in fancy <laughs> and style to each other, which was, it was huge fun. And it was very, it was very different to what I was doing at work in the research term. So it was, it was a lovely kind of escape from that. Yeah. Yeah. So was there, um, was there a big push and pull for you, Lynn, as far as, you know, your non-gaming professional career and you getting drawn into this world and you start creating for, for tabletop games? Was there a push and pull period for you? I mean, there was, um, I, I stopped doing research because I didn't enjoy it anymore. Um, it, you know, research can be incredibly frustrating unless you're lucky. Um, so I was, I was being drawn more towards the gaming. Um, I wanted to retrain. Uh, I'd also developed an anaphylaxis to latex, which isn't great if you're working in a research setting. I could see um, that. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, nitrile gloves were available, but they're expensive. So people, if you applied for jobs and it was kind of like, no, you're going to have to make this extra accommodation. It was kind of like, Ooh, no, we'll, we'll go with the person we're not going to have, you know, potentially right. die on us at any point in time. Um <laughs> Great method of controlling students going into anaphylactic shock in the middle of a session, but I, I really couldn't recommend it as, a, as an overall um, classroom control technique because um, that did happen once. And, and the oh, students, bless. bless them, always behaved ever after because they were terrified I was going to die on them. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, I don't recommend that as doing anything more <laughs> well, than It's not very repeatable, is it's it, It's not Len? repeatable, no. <laughs> it's, it's really not. And science is all about repeatability. So. Exactly. <laughs> You tested that hypothesis, so no reason yeah, no, to test no need it, to do it again. again. No. Um, so, yeah, I, I just had enough. Um, so I left. Um, I tried to um, retrain um, as an embroiderer, as a sort really? of like a creative crafts teacher, uh, right at the point in time when the British government withdrew all funding for community teaching. So that I kind of ended up being forced back uh, into the biological sciences because I had fallen out of love with them. Yeah. Um, so I taught A-level, I taught entry programs to university degree programs for people who didn't have A-levels. A-levels are kind of like the high school qualifications mm-hmm. that you need in Britain to, to get into university. Um, so I, I did that for a, a, about another eight years. And the, the politics of that just kind of got to me and I was escaping more and more into gaming because, right. you know, work was miserable. I was teaching some embroidery, but that was very much on the side because the just wasn't enough work to go around um and you know i specialize in historical embroidery techniques hand sewing and things which isn't isn't particularly trendy and the main reason for that is because <laughs> sewing machines try to kill me every time i go near them so you know it's just not safe for anybody um so yeah i kind of there came to this crisis point uh where it was a case of i, I can't do the lecturing anymore because i'm it's making me miserable um I've tried getting normal jobs with, you know, normal with air quotes there. Sure. But as soon as people see my list of qualifications, they don't take me seriously. Yeah. Um, because, they, you know, they just assume I'm doing it for five minutes before I disappear off somewhere else. <laughs> so it's kind of like, well, what else can I actually do? <laughs> it's like, well, I can, I can write a bit. Um, I can organize my time. Um I've produced this game, you know, maybe, yeah. you know, financially we were in a secure enough position for me to be able to do that. Nice. And that was a very important part of it. If we hadn't been in a financially secure position, there's no way I, I could have done that. I'd have had to stay lecturing. Right. Um, yeah. You wouldn't and, have been able to take the chance. No, wouldn't have been able to take the chance. Um, because let's face it with 
few, with a few exceptions, pretty much everybody in the gaming industry is freelance and pretty much everybody has to have a normal job to be able to make ends meet unless they've got a partner who's got a really well-paying stable job so they can take the time to go off and develop their career full-time. Yeah. So now I want to talk about Blue Rose, which is a game that has always fascinated me. So when did Blue Rose come onto your uh, radar? Well, that was another one. This is, again, this is all down to Robin. Robin Robin always (laughs) finds it highly amusing that as a Canadian, he has to get brutal and pushy uh, and manage my career for me because apparently I'm far too English and polite and won't do it myself. He is Um, such a character. We had him on the show. He's fantastic. (laughs) He is. He gave a speech at our wedding, you know, that kind. So, you know, we've we've been there. um, We've been there, you know, friends for for donkey's years now. Um, So, yeah, I do owe a lot to Robin. And um, so no, I got an email um, from Green Ronin saying, oh, you know, Blue Rose needs editing. The new edition of Blue Rose needs editing. Are you available? Would you be interested? And, and at the time, it landed at pretty much the right time, to be honest. It was between Acton Cthulhu and me starting to really heavily work with, with Chaosium. So it was a case of, oh, that would, that would be nice. I wonder where they got my details from. And it, I think it was Robin had been dropping hints. <laughs> far as I know it was Robin dropping hints they got me that um so that was wonderful because I remember Blue Rose coming out the first time but it kind of slid by me um just because it was mostly d20 based and I wasn't really doing d20 stuff at that point in time um and then sort of I got got this game and I mean let's face it that Stephanie Puyman Law's artwork is just so stunning it's visually arresting yeah and in many ways it kind of brought back happy talislanta memories because of course you had pd breeding blacks absolutely stunning artwork for that which was one yep. of the things that drew me into it um so then i started discovering this incredible world and editing that and working together with first steve kenson and then joseph Carricker, who are both extremely talented and wonderful people yeah and it was just a really fun and interesting world to dive into and help develop and help get out there so that more people could play it. Yeah, I um we had Steve on the show as well, another wonderful human being that walks this planet. Um and it is it's very interesting to me the how unique Blue Rose is and 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 from not just mechanically, not just the world, but just kind of um the the audience the blue rose has collected like you every time i bring up blue rose to somebody uh, you never hear somebody go yeah it's fine like either people are like yeah wouldn't touch it have no interest or they're like oh my god that's the greatest game that's ever been created (laughs) there's no middle ground with blue rose (laughs) (laughs) so when you think about your time on blue rose what do you think it did for you um creatively what did it do for you as far as honing your skills again it's it's a case of you learn to work with other people yeah and this is it it's it's no game is created in isolation unless you are creating your own little independent game and you can do everything. And, you know, bigger games that you've got your artists, you've got your development team, you've got your layout people, you've got your marketing people. So it's all this team skills, getting to work with different people, learning. Again, it, it, it's learning different people's views and perspectives and lived mm-hmm. experiences, which is, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Um, Again, it's that shared world building. Yeah. You know, it's it's learning how to build a different world. Learning what you can do with that different world, looking at things at different perspectives and sort of like challenging yourself to to go outside what you know. 
right. not being afraid to do that. You, you're not going to get it right all the time. You, you don't. But hopefully if you're in a team, other people will be there to to show you what you do need to do and, and how to sort of improve your game and, and pick yourself up and head in the right direction. So again, it was it was more about flex. It was teaching me more about flexibility and the fact that, you know, just reinforcing that, you know, you are never too old to learn. You can always yep. pick up new things. You can always learn new skills. And again, honing the editing, the um, the analytical side of things, which to be fair between me doing the research and then coming back to games writing and editing, it, it had kind of the analytical side of things had kind of dropped off a bit. Sure. Um, but kind of like doing forensic analysis to make sure that the mechanics are, are right um, and, you know, bits aren't missing um, and everything is supporting each other. That was kind of getting that back up to speed again as well. So, um, you know, there's a spectrum. I mean, when you, when we talk about creating for RPGs, there's there's two things, and they're married together. So I don't I don't mean to separate them uh, in a, in a false way, but you've got the mechanics, right? The actual the the nuts and bolts of it, and then you've got the narrative. And it's obvious to me the, the your attraction to the narrative and your love of that. How how much do you love about the mechanics, or are the mechanics something that are are part of it, and you and you use it, or do you get into the the nitty gritty of that at all? For the job I do, I have to get into the nitty gritty, at least for right. me. Um, I mean, the the interesting thing is that you do you get some people who are full on all the story. That's it. That's their thing, and that's good. And then you get people who are well into the mechanics, and you know, like figuring out all the probabilities, and you know, and and I've worked with people like that, and I'm in awe of them. Um, and then you get the people in the middle, kind of, I suppose, like me, where it's like, I absolutely adore the story and the story's brilliant. And I, I will I will go through the nitty gritty of the mechanics to kind of make sure that they're, they're supporting the storytelling that the game is after. But when I design my own systems, it's more about field and probabilities. I'm kind of the statistics side of the human genetics is always the bit I was rubbish at. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, statistics and probabilities is kind of like... Um, so I, I think it's very much by feel when I do that. But if there's a system gotcha. already developed, I can tweak it. I can do various different things with it. But sort of like going for the crunchy is not really me in terms of system design. But I can use other people's crunchy stuff. And very, I can analyze it nice. and see how it works. And then I can, you know, I can apply that and, and make it do things. Well, it sounds like there was a lot of a lot of things that you picked up and got better at as you worked on Blue Rose. What was the most challenging, though? So, again, looking back at it, um, what did you struggle with the most? And it sounds like you may have overcome it. But like, what was the one where you just either you fought or they fought you or you fought yourself and and come, came out the other side? I'm I know. Me, Steve, and Joe didn't fight because <laughs> no, you know we. I mean, we got on incredibly. We still do get on incredibly well. Like you said, they're they're just the sweetest um, people. Um, there was a very good working relationship there. I think one of the the most interesting ones that was a challenge was there was a scenario collection, and some of the writers were short story writers, and some of them mm-hmm. were games writers. And it was it was interesting to see because you could tell the short story writers because they hadn't allowed any agency for the players to do anything. They were really great stories, but the characters were watching events on film. So right. that was the it's the the challenge of showing short story writers how to let go of a lot of the creative control and 
use what they've got as a framework for other people's expression rather than dictating. Yeah. And and some people got it. Some people really got it. I mean, it was new to them. They'd not, they'd not thought about that. And then other people really struggled with it. Um, so, you know, that they are different skills. And if you want total control of a story, then, yeah, you should be writing short stories. If you don't mind other people just taking it and doing all sorts of crazy stuff with it, then you'll be fine with game design <laughs> and scenario design because you're prepared to let it go. Yeah. And, and when you think about it, when we look at the last, you know, three, four decades of game design, we almost see the same arc, right? Where we see things being very prescriptive, very GM centered at the very beginning. And then over time, it seems like all of us collectively as a as a as a player base that is as consumers, as well as creators getting more comfortable uh, with that, which is absolutely fascinating. I think part of it as well is because we did so much live role playing. There's this whole element of rules like stuff feeding into um, and I mean, just the fact, this is going to sound a terrible thing to admit, but my brain only retains systems as long as I'm working on them. Yeah. Um, because there's so much else going on in there. Um, so I tend to forget rules quite a lot. <laughs> so, you know, rules light is great for me or, or things that inherently make sense to my brain. So the age system seems to inherently make sense to my brain. And the BRP system inherently makes sense to my right. brain. Um, so I retain bits of those, you know, and I can freshen them up whenever I need them. But, yeah, I think there's, there's kind of you've got a lot of people coming in from computer video games. You've got a lot of people coming in through cosplay and they're used to these kind of almost invisible systems. So you do have to have a lot more storytelling, a lot more give and take. You're not relying on inherent crunch to get you through in the way that you kind of did in the 70s and 80s with things like aftermath and role master and space master i mean i had a huge amount of fun playing role master and space master right. back in the day but you know like it's not something i'd want to play now i i completely agree i mean I, as a kid i was a big gurps guy loved gurps um, but coming back to it as an adult, you know, I, I picked up the newest version of GURPS and I was going like, I don't think I have time to get my mastery of the system again, you know, and then I, you know, would come across speaking of, of uh, Mr. Harper, I come across something like Blades in the Dark and I'm like, I can consume this in one sitting and potentially even run it. Not necessarily great. It takes time. But it, it was very interesting to see that progression over time. And I mm -hmm. think your point is fantastic um, as far as kind of understanding that arc. So, guys, we're going to take another break. When we come back from this break, we're going to talk about a game that um, you've heard talked about on the show before. We, of course, had Chris Birch on the show to talk about this. And I was super excited when I knew we were going to be able to talk to Lynn. And that's going to be Octum Cthulhu. So we'll be right back. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, 
or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. Time for a quick shout out to our most recent patrons. A big thank you goes out to Peter Sojnek, Nathan E. Hoyle, Jimmy CZ, Wayne Peacock, Oliver Borden, Zachary Wills, J. Douglas Nielsen, Patrick Healy, Ifrit V. Diablo, Greg Packman, Eric Conrad, and Joe Root. Because of them and the 100 plus other patrons, we're able to put out content to you on a regular basis. Thank you. Hi there, this is Owen from the Nova Open. I am a $5 patron of Third Floor Wars because I love supporting the whole Malifaux community. I want to help Craig and the whole Third Floor Wars team continue making the fantastic content that gets me through my daily commute. You should join me in supporting the show. Just pause this episode, head to patreon.com and search Third Floor Wars or grab the link in the show notes. See you there. So you mentioned uh, you connecting with Chris um, and getting involved with Octon Cthulhu. Can we get a little bit more details about that? So at some point, you and Modiphius uh, have no relationship, and then suddenly you do. What was the first reach out or connection? <laughs> this is one of those weird serendipitous things. Um, I mentioned before um, Company of Crimson, which was our Victorian LARP that we did. And then when that storyline wrapped up, we went on to uh, League of Crimson, which was 1920s nice. LARPing. And then when that wrapped up, after a bit of a break, we started something called Co- Codename Crimson, which was 1940s <laughs> World War II. Um, and, you know, I'd been doing research and things for that, um, getting into that. Um, and we were at Dragon Meat. I'd, I was about to quit my job. I'm not sure I wow. or either had just quit my job at that point. I actually might just have quit it. Um, and... Rich, my husband, was talking to Sarah Newton, and they were just chatting. I was running, I I can't remember what I was running, but I was running a game, and I could hear them chatting away over my shoulder. Um, And Sarah was talking about um, Acton Cthulhu, and I think Three Kings was out at that point. I don't think Heroes of the Sea was. Um, But, um, you know, I could hear them chatting away about Codename Crimson. Um, And then Sarah had said, well, you know, Chris is planning on, on taking this up to a full game. Um, get in touch. You know, if if Lynn's sort of going to be doing some writing, tell her to get in touch. So I did, and I sent <laughs> cogs and cakes in as as the the writing sample. You know, kind of like yeah. this is what I can do. Um, and I mean, originally, I was just going to be the research assistant. I wasn't going to do anything else. Um, I I was probably going to write one chapter of Shadows of Atlantis. I pitched for a chapter of Shadows of Atlantis. Um, but then the framework that I'd kind of put it in, Chris really liked. So it kind of ended up with the whole thing. Um, wow. But there was somebody else was going to helm it. Um, and I was going to be there to to do all the research and produce all the notes. And then they were going to go write it. And then they backed out just before the Kickstarter started. And it was a case of pretty much everything's in place. You know, the art's in place with Dean Martin. You know, all the, the you know sort of like all the structures. You've got kind of got writers lined up to to come in on this sort of thing. Will you helm it? Wow. And you know, um, the the arrogance of of relative youth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't claim I was young, but you know, um, 
I, I just went, yeah, why not? You know, I've run research projects, might as well. Um, and I remember when the Kickstarter went live and it was a case of, gosh, wouldn't it be embarrassing if we don't actually make this £8,000? Um, and then watching it galloping over the hill at a massive rate of knots. Unbelievable. And it's like, oh, blimey. So um, rather a lot of books later, um, <laughs> several Ennies, which are dangling down here next to <laughs> next to the computer. Um, oh. Yeah, no, that was that was one heck of an experience. I bet. So what condition was the game in when you were brought in and they said, yeah, just kidding. You're not going to be a research assistant. We want you to run the whole damn thing. What condition was everything in at that point? Well, it was a case of, well, we know we know what books we want to do. We, we don't really have any outlines for them. We've got yeah. this Kickstarter campaign put together. We've got a bit of the world's background because obviously Three Kings and, and um, Heroes of the Sea. Um, so it was a case of, well, we want to develop the world. We want a core rule book for the keepers. We want an investigator's handbook. We want to do these setting books in various theatres of the war. We want a couple of big campaigns. We, you know, Chris had organised crossovers with various companies, um, some of which were going to be written by... The other companies' teams, right. some of them are going to be written by writers who'd worked for those companies. Um, and then there was the core, there was the core team, um, which, um, as far as I know, Mihao was the only full-time employee. The rest of us were freelance. So there was me, Mihao Cross, who was doing the design and layout, Dim Martin, who was doing the art, and Dave Bluer, who was the Savage Worlds rules guru. Um, because it was dual statted, it was BRP and Savage Worlds. Yeah. So that was kind of it. You know, we had authors attached to books, but no real outlines. So I kind of came in and I put together the outlines of what I wanted. I assigned it to the various authors and we just kind of slowly but surely waded our way through the vast amount of stuff we had to do. So there's an early concept of the game when you come in, right? So Chris has this. Chris knows, right? It's all, yeah. all in his head. He has an idea of what it wants to be, and then the, and then we go to the end when it's being delivered and people start using it. How much did we see his vision change, or did it was it there the whole time, or did did the game change over time as it became as it developed? And and when I say game, I mean the world, everything. Um, I mean, as, as far as I know, it was still. I mean, obviously, because Chris was putting bits into into the books but he was very hands-off in that respect you know we me and dave um had the big conversation with chris and sarah at the beginning about what their views on the world were where they saw things going and we tried to be as faithful to that as possible chris had final say on all of the books so i'm assuming he was happy with what we were doing (laughs) (laughs) he never said he wasn't right (laughs) i take that as a win um so yeah i'm I, i like to think that you know we delivered on that original vision i mean obviously it won't have been identical because both dave and myself and all the authors put in our own individual little bits of spin on on various uh, things um and you know nothing that a gamer touches ever remains unchanged True. <laughs> these things have a tendency to metamorphose under their own steam and there's nothing you can do to stop that yeah so you have a timer going Right. So the Kickstarter's out there and there's a promise of delivery. There's dates that are, you know, written in pen. <laughs> um, what is it like um, or what was it like to work under that level of I mean, the pressure must have been immense. To a certain extent. Um, I mean, the key thing was and this was this was the good thing was that Chris was more concerned that we put out a really good quality product than hitting a set date. Yeah. So, I mean, we did end up with a huge amount of stuff we needed to write. 
12 books in the end. Um, and it was still the same. At the end of the day, there were still the four of us at the centre that had to go through everything. So, that you know, there's, there's only so many hours in the day. Um, so, you know, it was just a case of just bodding steadily through it, making sure that we were producing good, high quality books um, and, you know, keeping people informed. Yeah. And and it also it was I mean it was you know with anything that size it it get hits it gets hit by all sorts of things I mean my dad died unexpectedly just as the the keeper's guide came in for editing so obviously that as an only child I had a whole load of things to do with his estate yeah. to sort out various of the other writers lost parents or close family members during that time so they you know there several of them were, were very ill so you know you had all these real world things piling in but keeping people informed. You know, people were aware that we hadn't just disappeared and that things were coming. So we did manage to get things out on a fairly steady basis. Right. I mean, okay, you know, the original the original deadlines went sailing by. Um, but, you know, we were still putting out four, five books a year, um, which is a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> That's incredible. So the one thing that fascinates me um, in this process, Lynn, is uh, understanding or knowing what the what I call the pencils down moment is. Right. Because you could you can develop stuff like this in perpetuity. Right. There's always more. There's always things, always uh, edges that can be sand or things that can be glued on. Um, hey, and we can use Octon Cthulhu as a, as a um, maybe as a model for that. Like, when do you get the feeling like, OK, we're done? But this this book is finished and I'm not going to look at it again and we're going to get it printed, which means I can't change it. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder, I'm trying to get a sense of when you feel like that feeling comes about, that moment where you're like, I'm good. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's something you cannot, I honestly cannot tell you. You just kind yeah. of know. It's the same as when you, how much research is enough? It's kind of like, you know, yeah. and it, it is different for every single project. I mean, some books, it took a lot more work to get them where I wanted them to be. Other books were there pretty much instantaneously. They kind of just seemed to know what they wanted to be and then, then just kind of like did their thing. Um, and it, it is, it's, it's, you, you just kind of learn when, when it's the right time. Although to be fair, again, Dave Bluer, um, it was great working with him. He always insisted that you never released a book. It escaped into the wild, <laughs> um, which is very true. It you know, is. it's completely true. And it doesn't matter how many times you go over it and how much you look at it. As soon as it's published, you pick up the book, you open a random page, and there's this glaring typo or thing that's missing, and you just go, Ugh. Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> Although for over six months, nobody noticed we'd actually completely got the wrong stats in a table, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just so much and and you get and it's why fresh eyes can be so important mm. in that process, oh, yeah. too. Right. To to put it in front of somebody who hasn't been there through the whole thing um, to, to grab onto that. Um, that's that's incredible. So, guys, we're going to take another break and we're going to move along the Lovecraftian path. But this time we're going to talk about uh, Lynn partnering up with Chaosium. We'll be right back. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need 
and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift and you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So we talked at the very, very beginning about uh, where you are with Chaosium, but at some point you had no connection with them. So let's talk about that handshake. When did that, uh, when did you come on their radar or they came on your radar? Well, quite early in the Actum days, because obviously Actum Cthulhu was a licensed product. Yeah. Nothing could be released without Chaosium say so. Yeah. Because obviously they're, they're trying to make sure that you're not doing anything that's misrepresenting them or putting them in a bad light. So I was sending books off to Mike all the time, Mike Mason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I didn't really know him. Um, and I'd seen him at conventions talking about seventh edition and things. Uh, so, you know, I was sending books off to him for approval. He liked me because I, te- I was delivering stuff. And <laughs> if there was anything that needed changing, I would do it quickly and get it back to him for approval. We worked together to try and lay in as much kind of 7th edition, pre-7th edition stuff as we could in terms of some of the difficulty levels so that when the time came, it would be less difficult to, to sort of like convert between the two. I mean, if Pulp Cthulhu had been out at the time, let's face it, Acton Cthulhu would have been a Pulp Cthulhu game. There's no two ways around it. Um, that was very much its sensibilities. Um, but we did what we could to, to sort of facilitate that up until the point. Um, so no, I mean I was I was working in that respect with Mike from the moment we started putting books out, uh, and that that relationship developed from there really. So when did it when did the relationship go to the next level, Lynn? Okie dokie. Well, I left I left Modifius in about 2015 because I'd you know I think it was all bar two of the Kickstarter books were out. I'd done everything that I felt I could for the line. Those two books were in other hands. They, you know, they were going to make it past the goalpost without me. I mean, I'd already fired myself as line editor months before um, because I needed to get Shadows of Atlantis written. Because right. it just wasn't happening because I was too busy managing all the other books. So, you know, I'd already yep. sacked myself. Um, so I kind of, the Midifious work sort of ramped down. I, I was working on Blue Rose. Um and then Mike came to me and, and was sort of like, uh, you know, offering me bits and bobs. And um, obviously, was it 2015, around the same time, Moon Design took over Chaosium. And uh, Robin intervened again, um, <laughs> uh, as as is his want. Uh, he, funnily enough, we, we had the Modifius booth at Gen Con opposite the Chaosium booth. And, and he said, Moon Design had just taken over. And I was like, I really should go over and talk to them, but it, it kind of seems a bit rude. <laughs> sure. <laughs> don't look behind me, just talk to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Hello, it's me, talk to me. Don't you know who I am? Um, um, and, and I never expect anybody to know who I am, um, you know, because, you know, <laughs> people don't tend to read who's written stuff and who yeah. the creative teams are, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's always a real surprise when anybody actually knows who I am. Um but no, I was sort of like, and I'd gone over to uh, the uh, the Palgrain booth to talk to Robin and Ken, and Robin had gone, have you talked to the new KOZ owners yet? And I'd gone, no. And he's like, right. And he literally route-marched me back across the trading hall, oh, presented me to Jeff, um, basically went, hello, Jeff, this is Lynn Hardy. Just, mm-hmm, I hire her. I nearly hit the floor. <laughs> 
wasn't used to Robin saying things like that. Isn't that funny? Um, and I then kind of had to have a conversation with Jeff <laughs> whilst stunned. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd be curious, Lynn, and, and we don't have to get into it if you don't want to, but what is that conversation like? So Rob, Robin just drops you off and, and takes off. Away, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like <laughs> I'd, I'd be very curious kind of because, you know, you're feeling him out. He's trying to feel you out. And like, I'd be curious what that conversation's like. Well, I mean, I had met, met Jeff a couple of times before at various UK conventions, but it had been a long, long time. Um, and and sort of like Jeff's known Robin for years. They're, they're really good friends. So, you know, kind of an introduction like that means that some of the hard work is done because on someone else's word, you kind of don't have to necessarily prove yourself as much. So there's kind yeah. of that, that kind of awkward step is sort of taken care of, not completely. Um but it was just we sat down and Jeff said, well, what sort of things do you want to do? And I mean, at the time, I had a ton of research that I'd done for Shadows of Atlantis that had never got used. And, and I hadn't actually learnt my lesson at that point that it's only really lunatics that write gigantic world-spanning solo adventures on their own. Um, so I went, well, you know, I'd kind of really like to do one kind of based here. And he went, well, you know, go home, do some bits of research, pitch it, send it to Mike. Um, and then I, I worked with Mike to get the pitch right and then started writing Shadows of Atlantis. Um, and then Mike came to me and went, you know, we're, we're going to be updating Masks of Nihilathotep and, and we're wow. going to split it between people. And, we'd you know, we'd I'd like you to be involved in this. Um, you know, it'd mean you taking some time off from Shadows of Atlantis because obviously it's going to be a full on job. But I don't think it's going to take too long. <laughs> um, famous last words. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of like, well, I really would like to get Shadows, uh, not Shadows of Atlantis, I really would like to get Children of Fear um, finished. But I'm only going to get this chance once. Yeah. So I can't actually say no. You know, yeah. I've, I've got to go for it. Um, so Children of Fear went on hold, uh, which <laughs> the first of many times over the years. <laughs> um, and, and I went to work on masks. And I think that was what really cemented my my reputation in being able to deal with complex um, projects because it, it was a complex project and it took way longer than all of us thought it was going to take. Um, and then after that, I was I was from there. I was freelance, effectively working as as assistant associate editor. Um, you know, sort of like shepherding projects over the finishing line and then two years ago I think it's two years ago I mean time has lost all meaning <laughs> let's face it over last year um yeah about two years ago I was actually taken on full-time on staff that's amazing that's amazing and how much changes for you at that point Lynn going from freelance to full-time it's really nice to have a paycheck every month again <laughs> I would imagine <laughs> <laughs> but again it's, it's one of those really weird things because we have always only we've always budgeted our lives based on only one of us ever having a full-time job right always um because i was in research science you know unless you get tenured the best you're looking at is a three-year research grant you know it's the, there is no real stability there you're hopping yeah. from short-term contract to short-term contract anything from three months to three years you know so no i mean we've we've been incredibly fortunate in the fact that it it's worked out for us you know, let's face it, gaming is pretty much our entire voice. Um, so, <laughs> and gin. Um, but um, 
No, I mean, we, we live very much within our means and, and me having that extra wage means that we can save up for for my retirement. Not that it's ever likely to happen. Um, <laughs> but because of the various careers I have, I have virtually nothing really in the way of a pension. So it's kind of like right. it's nice to have that money now to be able to try and yeah. put it away for a rainy day. Um and just be able to go on nice holidays as and when we're allowed to do that again, when it's safe to do so, and go to conventions and, and sort of like catch up with all our friends. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's amazing. So one thing I think it would be interesting for us to learn is um, your view of the mythos and your view of the of of the entire uh, ecosystem uh, of Lovecraft. So. There's a point where you and we've talked about it where you didn't work on any of that. Right. So you may have been as a player and as a consumer of the products. And then now, I mean, it's been your life. Right. And you've been bare. You've been just, you know, uh, it's over the nose in it. What what has changed for you as far as your your understanding, your your feelings? Um, Is it do you look at it all now differently than you did before? Yes. I think, you know, once you're that deep on the inside, you kind of have to, um, and you, sure. you certainly do. But, I mean, the key thing the key thing that I I always take from the mythos is the fact that right from its beginnings, it was a shared world. Hmm. And that's exactly what we're doing with it. It's yeah. a shared world for people to tell their own stories in. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's funny, I guess I've never really thought about how – far ahead of the curve Lovecraft was when he when he did create kind of the shared world I mean it um yeah I guess I've never thought about yeah, that that's I mean, very for, interesting you know, he got a heck of a lot of things totally totally and horrifically wrong but yeah. that shared world building was something that I think is reflected very very well in the game so here's a question that I um, I talked a little bit about De- to Dennis Detwiller, who's uh, a part of the team over um, putting out uh, Delta Green. And it's very interesting to me because, you know, you, you set me down as a as, as somebody who has consumed everything Lovecraft for uh, decades now. And I can sit in one chair and talk to people about, you know, just how incredible the world him as a writer. Um, I mean, uh, unbelievable the innovations and the things that he was doing that changed literature, uh, literally changed things. And then if I need to, I can go into another chair and talk about what a horrible human being he was in many respects. And I'd be curious um, as somebody who, again, is producing in this shared world, do you reconcile that at all? Or how do you deal with the problematic aspects of Lovecraft? Well, for a start, you have to acknowledge them. You can't pretend they're not there. Um, yeah. He was not a pleasant person. Um, he hated pretty much everybody, distrusted pretty much everybody, um, was obviously a very lonely and miserable man and, and, you know, lashed out at everything he didn't see as familiar and, and, and you know, let's face it, straight white wasp, yep. you know, it's sort of, um, which is desperately sad because he did have this prodigious imagination. He did have this ability to tell really weird, unsettling stories. So you have to acknowledge it, mm-hmm. but you also have to accept that, you know, it's not his world any longer. And it, it nice. never really was entirely from the beginning. It, it, it was this shared world. And it's our mythos now. And it's up yeah. to us to shape it and change it and 
bring other people into it who might not have thought about it before precisely because of who Lovecraft was. Yeah. Um, and learn from them, listen to their mm -hmm. stories. And again, this is this whole, you're never too old to learn. Um, getting other people's perspective on things deepens your own understanding, deepens your own engagement, allows you to see things from a different perspective. And that's all incredibly valuable and it just enriches the world. And just claiming it as your own, I think is a wonderful way to put it. Um, and, and, and not tearing it, yeah, tearing it away and just say, you know what, it's not, it's not his anymore. It's, it's now, it's now everybody's. And that's part of it. I think that's a fascinating way to look at it. So you finish this huge two volume, gorgeous <laughs> source book adventure. I mean, it's just everything. It's an amazing piece of work. Then it sounds like we get to go back to children of fear. So for those listening, one, I'm going to preempt this by saying I'm a, such a fan. <laughs> so I mean, everybody listening is going to hear me fanboy a little bit, but um, can we give people that aren't as familiar as I am with it, can we give them a sense of what children of fear is? It's um, a large not continent spanning, but definitely multi-country multi spanning campaign um, set in China, Central Asia, Northern India and Tibet, set in the 1920s um, for classic Cthulhu. Um, I can't really go into too much more detail because there's an awful lot of spoilers there. <laughs> I know. We've got to be really careful <laughs> about that. Careful <laughs> really about that careful. Uh, but basically the investigators... Uh, are all recruited because um, the archaeologist, historian Langdon Warner has sent a telegram asking for help to be sent urgently to the Caves of the Thousand Buddhas at Tunhuang in Central Asia. What could go wrong? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's a perfectly jolly little romp, you know. It's like, it's, it's nice. It's kind of like um, Takenoko, you know, you, yeah, is it Takenoko? Um, no, Takaido, the, you know, the beautiful board game where you're just going for a lovely walk and collecting right. tourist stuff along the way. <laughs> Got a Cthulhu, nothing's going to go wrong. Oh, that's great. So I would be fascinated, especially now having a better sense of your background, Lynn, what was the research like for that? What, what were some big things that you were like, wow, I did not know that? Oh, did quite a lot. <laughs> I bet. Huge amounts. Um, but this is this is another one of those really weird ones where it started out, I thought it was going to be one thing, and then it totally changed into something else. Interesting. Interesting. So, so I, what I, did it start as? What well, did you think I'd it was kind of, I had all this stuff on bits of northern India, but I also had, I thought it was going to be mostly set in southern India. Mm. Because there was, there was a whole load of research that I'd done for Shadows of Atlantis that was all this sorts of stuff about you know, sort of like the, the origins of language and weird things, you know, like forts going off under the sea and all sorts of stuff down in, in sort of like southern India. And then I started looking at things and, you know, talking to Jeff about the Taklamakan Desert and various other things and, and stuff in Tibet. And, and, it, and I started doing more research on the areas that sounded interesting and then, of course, Journey to the West kept cropping up, which, as I already mentioned at the beginning, Monkey. I grew up watching the Monkey TV series, which was, you know, great. Everybody used to run around the playground going with the fingers and summoning the cloud and running around fighting each other. Um, and, you know, so like that kept cropping up. And, and something else, which I'm not going to mention because it would totally give the game away, also kept cropping up whenever I was mm -hmm. researching various places. And it was like, no, this is telling me what it wants to be. 
Interesting. And I can either try and force it to be what I want to be, which is going to be a really hard job, and this is going to be enough of a job anyway, um, or I can actually listen to what the research is telling me and, and go that way. And I followed the research. Interesting. Interesting. So as you started to do that, Lynn, and it started to, starts to take form, and I think it's very interesting for you to be in a situation where you had to set it down for a while and come back. So I'd, I'd be curious when you brought, when you picked it back up again, and we talked about fresh eyes to a certain degree with fresh eyes, was there um, some big changes that happened or, or a mindset flip um, after you'd taken a break and picked it back up again? Well, I've got more experience for a start, you know, oh, you know, yeah. every, you, you, it's still more writing, more experience, more like honing the kind of things that work for Call of Cthulhu, um, the sorts of things that might appeal to people. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's there's always changes. Things are always evolving as you're writing. You have your pitch to work from, but as you write things, ideas come up that, you know, just sort of because you've got things percolating around in the back of your brain. Yep. It's, it's sort of like chugging away subconsciously, going putting the, the pieces together. So, and all of a sudden, you'll get this little light bulb moment. will go, oh, if you do that, and it's like, well, it's not in the pitch, but that's actually way more interesting. And let's do that. Interesting. Um, and then, of course, you play test it, and your players come up with way better ideas than you ever will do. Because again, you've kind of got too close to it, and you're not seeing yeah. things. So you, you know, with their blessing, you swipe all this really awesome stuff that they've just done for you, and then you work that in too. You know, so that it's this, it is, it's this organic process of research writing testing i mean i try to get as much of the research done as possible before writing so i've got a good idea of where things are going but i mean you know it was it was almost two years off on masks so that was a lot to come back and pick up and it's always weird when i do go back and read stuff that i've written because it's always like somebody else did it (laughs) (laughs) it's very odd um so yeah, it was. It took a little bit of while to get back up to speed, and of course, at that point, I'm also editing and working on a whole load of other books. So it's kind of yeah. chugging along in the background while other things are also happening. So I'm splitting my time, which is one of the reasons why it took five years, <laughs> pretty much, um, <laughs> to get out. Because you know, having that management type role, you you can't just devote yourself purely to yeah. one book. You know, you, you are working on multiple projects at a time that you you have to juggle to keep everything going because, you know, the we have a very insatiable fan base who are wonderful. Thank you for paying my wages. Um but you know, we have to keep putting stuff out there so for them to consume. Yep, yep, no question. So Children of Fear gets out. It's released. It's finally, uh, it escapes, as, as we said earlier, right? Um, I'm always fascinated as a creator to, to understand what it's like for it to be in the wild. So once it's out there, people are posting videos about it. They're doing reviews of it. There's blog posts about it. You know, people are, people love it. People are frustrated by it. I'd be curious as all of that's happening and it's no longer under your control. Was there anything that surprised you? And it could be, you know, anything good, bad um, people that did something with it that you didn't expect. Was there any surprises once it was in the wild? There's always surprises. And the the weird thing is, and I don't know if any of any other authors get this, but it's also, it's always weirdly slightly anticlimactic once it's out. Interesting. Because it's kind of like, oh, that's it then. (laughs) (laughs) That's five years of my life. Where did that go? My Um, kid just went to college. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, oh, he's gone. Um, So... Yeah, it's just, it's a really weird feeling. And then there's kind of that lag between you suddenly realizing that it, it has escaped. Yeah. And then feedback starting to come in. 
and it is it's one of those weird things that you you know deep in your soul that you're never going to make everybody happy and it's never going to be attractive to everybody um so it's always nice when people do really love it and do yeah really take to it and and i've had some really lovely feedback i've had some really i mean it's it's very embarrassing and humbling feedback you know being british um any any form of praise is is quite <laughs> terrifying and embarrassing um but you know it's no i mean it's it's been compared to masks which is is big deal oof, yeah um <laughs> i i mean obviously i'm i i'm not sure i can claim that um but it's very nice other people think it might be um but like you said deeply surprising um i didn't you know that there are some people who don't like it and that's because you literally cannot please everybody all of the time you know and they're the wonderful thing about the state of gaming at the moment is that just because that doesn't work for them doesn't mean that there isn't something else out there that will and there will be and that's that's the joy of it there is so much great stuff available and so many different ca- tastes catered to now mm-hmm. that you're kind of not just stuck with one thing and if you don't like it you kind of well that's that's it you're just going to have to suck it up and deal with it um but um no i mean the the feedback that i've i've had has been predominantly positive it is lovely to see the way that people are working it into their their you know continuing campaigns and how they're integrating it with other scenarios and campaigns and and standalone things so that they can transport existing characters over to it and some of the you know the creativity that that's out there in terms of doing this it's just it's wonderful to see it's amazing it's really beautiful to see so lynn um often called the golden age of role-playing right now people um it's more popular than it's ever been before um it uh, it was in a completely different state than when I left it 25 years ago, uh, and it was a wonderful thing to come back to. Um, I'm uh, lastly, I would be real curious: is there something about where we are now, or where we're headed as as players, as producers, as as a as an industry, and as a hobby that is really exciting for you? Um, is there something that's that um, makes you happy, so excited, uh, something to look forward to? Yes, it's seeing a whole load of new young gamers coming in and claiming their territory, marking their territory, getting their wares out there to share with people, sharing their ideas. As we've already mentioned, you know, seeing people from different backgrounds with different experiences, creating their games and sharing their experiences, uh, enriching the whole spectrum of gaming. And it's amazing to see. It's wonderful to see. Because you're getting all these new ideas and it challenges you to sit down and and look at what you've done and go, well, you know, not all of this applies to me, but what what of that can I use to inform my gaming and make me a better writer, better editor, better player? Um, What what is going to help me tell the sorts of stories that I want to tell with my friends? And I think that that is the joyous thing is to see all of these younger people coming in and doing gaming their way you know it's not stagnant it's changing it's evolving and it's a beautiful thing it's funny for me you know i'm uh, I'm 50 next year um and you know i was i played old dnd i played you know i can't even know what edition of call of cthulhu was my first edition of call of cthulhu um i am i really love to a certain degree saying you know what this this isn't 
my hobby anymore. I'm going to hand this over now in a weird way. And, and I love what everybody's doing with it. So I, there's, there's games that I have come across Lynn that challenge me um, on many levels. And I, I'm really pleased at how happy it makes me because mm-hmm. um, we have seen um, some fighting happening and some reluctance to, you know, and, the uh, what I call the grognard saying, well, that's not how we did it. And, you know, I, to a certain degree, I feel like the same way with popular music. I'm like, it's not popular music is not my music anymore. Yeah. It's not being it's not made for me anymore. And you know, I'm not supposed to like it. And <laughs> to a certain degree, I, I've kind of accepted that about our hobby as well. Yeah, I mean, there is that the whole point is that, you know, we're, we're an aging population. I mean, and one of the lovely things I do love seeing is generational gamers. You have grandparents gaming with their grandchildren. I've I've run scenario sessions at conventions for grandparents playing games with their grandchildren. And that's a beautiful thing to see. You've got three generations of families gaming together. Yeah. And that's it. But yeah, you're completely right. But the whole point is just that because it's we're not the target demographic anymore doesn't mean that our games aren't still there. Nobody's taken them away. Nobody's saying that you can't play them that way anymore. Yep. You game your way, just don't make it so that other people can't game their way. Don't get in the way. Yeah, precisely. Yep. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Lynn, I cannot thank you enough for uh, taking some time on a Saturday and blabbering on with me like this. Um, (laughs) Obviously, everything that we've talked about, I'm going to have linked in the show notes. So everybody right now, you can scroll down, uh, go buy Children of Fear. um, And if you don't like it, that's on me because I'm telling you you're going to. Um, (laughs) But um, for people that would want to get more Lynn outside of the links that we're going to share, is there places where they can go to stay connected with you or learn more about you? Oh, if you're quite prepared to, to to sort of read about me whiffling on about various projects, totally anonymously, because obviously I'm not allowed to name them while I'm working on them, um, gin, embroidery, random TV ramblings, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cogs and Cakes. Wonderful, wonderful. I, we'll have I a link to there. I used to have there. a blog every month, but I kind of gave up writing it a couple of years ago because it just like, yeah, it all just got a bit too depressing at the beginning <laughs> well, of last year. <laughs> and there's there's other things you're supposed to be writing, Lynn. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again, Lynn. We're going to have to come up with an excuse to have you on again. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you very much wonderful. for having me. It's been lovely. And for those of you that sat around all the way to the end and you're still listening, I appreciate you too. Take care. Take care, everyone. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. How are you on time, Lynn? I don't want I'm to take up too. I'm absolutely fine. No, Wonderful. Saturdays is lovely um, okay, good. because we have uh, we we all kind of get together over. Um, it's not Zoom. Which one is it? Um, I think it's Facebook or something. Uh, we all get together. So it's like all oh, the gaming people I did Company of Crimson and Codename Crimson and things with. Um, we have movie night. So oh, we, we line up fun. something on Netflix or Amazon and we have Facebook Messenger open. And then, we, you know, we kind of we're watching the film synchronously and typing sarcastic comments to each other. MST3K oh, style. 
It's your own MST 3000, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So what's tonight's movie? Not sure. Probably Hairspray. Very nice. Oh, God, I haven't seen that in forever. Yeah, I was um, actually filmed just down the road from where I used to live in Toronto. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Oh, isn't that funny? God, I remember I was I was a kid and in in high school working at a video store and uh, pretty sheltered life. And I'll never forget the first time I saw Hairspray. I'm like, I have never seen anything like this before, and I really like it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, we'd be watching the musical version, which obviously is a lot. <laughs> I've seen both, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's funny. All right, I'll bring us back. Well, he was another fascinating interview, Chris. Chris's background and how he ended up being where he is is just amazing. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um. And I, I got to tell you, I'm, I am so delighted at like I have yet to meet a bad human being as I've gone through these these interviews and bugged bugged people. Um, I, and, I, and I feel like my uh, my audience must be like, yes, Craig, we know you like that person, too. OK, Craig, <laughs> <laughs> like, haven't you had a bad interview? And the only the only interviews that I've struggled with were uh, tabletop gaming interviews. Every once in a while, I have a guest that I struggle with, but. Man, when I talk to RPG people, it's just it's just the greatest, which makes me happy. <laughs> um, all right, uh, let's bring us back uh, with that, which is absolutely fascinating. And so, guys, think, we're gonna go ahead, please. No, 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 no. Oh, well, I think I think part of it as well is because we did so much live role. Play. That's what we're going to do with Lynn today. So let's take a quick break. And we come back from this break, talk about troubling uh, uh, content creators. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, what uh, got him. F that up. Sorry. Hellgrain Press and Green Ronin. She is known. Uh, she is now in a leadership role. I saw saw Lovecraft and thinking that's where we were going to Lovecraft and then I just messed the whole damn thing up. The joy of editing. This is the brilliant It's a bit. beautiful thing. Yeah, we used to fluff up all the time when we were doing the Doctor Who podcast, so it was it was great to actually be able to go back and just cut stuff out. <laughs> I agree. Um, so to a large degree, Lynn, this next segment, I, I would really like to follow you more than anything. So I, I want to talk about uh, Cogs, Cakes and Sword uh, sword Sticks because I'm not familiar with it. Mm -hmm. So I'm dying to learn about it. But where we go from there is really up to you. And, um, you know, the idea being is I would love to touch on things that you feel were important to you as a creator, important to you as your as far as learning and your process and things like that. Does that sound okay? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, so what? I will flag up that then we'll be bringing Dying Earth in. Is that that oh, was where nice. I, I I I don't ask me anything about the system. I can't remember. It's been years, and my brain does not hold that information well. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure, boy. That's been getting uh the uh, I saw the Kickstarter for the um yes, the Dungeon the, Classics, the, isn't it? The DCC, yeah, the DCC version. That's that's there seems to have been some demand there based on the funding level that's getting. It's incredible. Speaking of which, how about uh, the Chaosium? I know uh, it's great, isn't it? It makes me so happy. It just makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll bring us back. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over, and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, you might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around.
Take care.